Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy, and we are here to wrap up. Joe, what was this? Week ten? Week ten of college baseball? It's eleven. Oh, it's eleven. Yep. I know what week it is. It's uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's a long season, folks. We're here to wrap up week eleven of college baseball. It was uh, a pretty exciting one, ultimately. On paper, if you listen to our our preview podcast, you know that like we hit on some of the the bigger series, but some of the the best action was actually elsewhere as it was a weekend that I think was really defined by upsets. And so we're going to get into some of those here, recap uh, all the action and, and talk about which ones had the biggest impact on the overall race, whether we're talking about conference races or postseason races. So a lot to dive into there, whether we're talking about Clemson sweeping Louisville, Texas Tech upsetting uh, Texas in Austin, Florida taking down Vanderbilt, uh, and uh, a busy weekend in in the Big Ten. There was a a lot to be had, and Joe and I are going to break that all down here. Uh, But first, the Baseball America College podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, like I said, weekend full of upsets. There were nine teams that were ranked in the top 25 that lost this weekend. Yes, that includes three series where there were two top 25 teams playing against each other. But in all three of those series, the higher ranked team lost. Uh, so, and, and that doesn't even include the fact that there were two top 25 teams that split their four game weekend series. So a lot, a lot happened across the country this weekend. A lot of, uh, a lot of upsets, a lot of surprises. Some of them really mattered. Some of them probably didn't matter all that much, frankly. Um, but we'll uh, we'll get into as much of it here as we can today. I don't really have a snappy, uh, you know, let's look at this team. But I will say, Joe, that Fairfield, who we made a big deal about over the last week as being 25-0, and rightfully so, but Fairfield undefeated no more after losing at Siena. That's not even counted in the up, the upsets here because they won three out of four. Uh, but the, the Stags, the last undefeated team in the country, they are no longer undefeated. Yeah, down go the Stags. Uh, Siena Saints took a game off them. Uh, you know, congrats to Tony Rossi and his Siena team for pulling that off. But, yeah, they, they hang in the rankings because it was kind of – there was some carnage in the rankings, and we debated do we bump them after having a loss because so much of their – the draw to them was that zero in the loss column. And 
but ultimately the, the, the one loss is okay. Holds them in there at least for, for another week. They only have one weekend of, of regular season play left before they go into the Metro Atlantic tournament, a format, which you, it, uh, you informed me over the weekend that we had bungled when we talked about it before. So, um, well, in, in fairness, um, they may have bungled it when they created this monstrosity. Yeah. It is a weird little, weird little system. Google it if you're interested. Um, but yeah, we, well, no, so what it is, is there are eight teams that make the tournament and they start by playing uh, three game series against each other. And then the four teams that win advance into what is effectively like the regional format and they play out double elimination with those four teams the following weekend. I it's uh, it's the reverse of what you see in uh, you know in, in the regional super regional format. Yeah, I mean, I guess points for creativity. I guess I mean, I guess I shouldn't be so so uh, so mean about it. But yeah, it is definitely just a just a kind of a weird little weird little system. So we had that wrong, but we have we have corrected the uh, the record. We're at an interesting time of year where. Uh, you know, and I said this uh, to somebody the other day, like one of the great things about this time of year, and I, and I stand by this, is you see the results of every win and loss in real time, whereas in early March, for example, we see series happen, and we think we maybe know what it means, but we but we really don't. I mean, how many times, you know, there, I'm sure if you go back to some podcasts we recorded in March, we spent a lot of time on certain series that just now don't have as much zing and then on the flip side just completely ignored series that now look like a huge huge deal so um you know we're so we are at that time of year where now we can kind of see it a little more clearly the flip side of it though is we are also at a time of year especially in the major conferences where we have series that happen and results that happen and they don't really mean anything at all because <laughs> the because those teams are so baked into where they are that there's really not a lot that can really be done to to kind of change that. So uh, we are at a fascinating point. I guess that is seeing the result in real time. It's just the result is like not not really much. So um, it you know overall that the best time of year in the sport because it is nice to be able to really understand what we're looking at in a way that's different from early in the season, but uh, everything and nothing matters uh, when it comes to results on a day-to-day basis in the sport now. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely an interesting time of year for, uh, for all of that. I, uh, you know, looking over the the landscape last night and and seeing all these upsets, I, I decided to try and just rank out which ones were actually worth really paying attention to which ones probably didn't mean as much. And I would say the most notable one that in terms of standings and everything probably just didn't mean that much was Ole Miss sweeping South Carolina. Uh, On the other hand, while that doesn't mean that much in the SEC race, neither of those teams is winning their division uh, and both are still in the hosting race. That was a big deal for the Rebs just from a mentality standpoint. So like from that standpoint, you know, we can never say which one of these results is going to have the bigger impact going forward because you never know what's going to spark a team or what's going to you know, drag a team down. And, you know, Ole Miss was a team that really needed a weekend like that. I think, you know, just given that they've lost four consecutive series and, you know, here comes South Carolina, uh, 
a, you know, we talked about this in the preview, like it was a pretty good matchup. We thought it was at home. They really needed to, they were going to, you know, break out of their skid. It felt like it had to happen this weekend. So like it's big from that standpoint, but the, the, the stuff we're going to focus on here and the stuff I focused on and off the bat, if you, uh, if you're interested in reading that is more the ones that like very meaningfully changed either their conference standings or the hosting race or the at-large race. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, there were a lot of those too, but you know, it, it, it's just, uh, you know, so, sometimes this time of year, like you say, Joe, that, um, you know, no, no matter how significant the series feels, it, it just doesn't always have, you know, the, the teams are what they are at this point in, in some cases. Yeah. I think we'll see that a little bit with, you know, when we talk about Florida and Vanderbilt, where that was a big deal for Florida because they, it opens up a path maybe to, to hosting and, and to achieve some of those goals that, that they had for going into the season they haven't lived up to to this point. But for Vanderbilt, they're disappointed, I'm sure, like especially that team. I mean, and Tim Corbin is a, a coach who, you know, uh, you know, t- takes losing fairly hard. And so, you know, they, they feel that loss. But in terms of postseason positioning and all that stuff, like that, you know, didn't really change anything as far as the calculus goes for, for Vanderbilt. Yeah, the, the thing for Vanderbilt besides losing to a, a rival that they uh, they don't want to lose to, and we can just start with Florida and Vanderbilt, I guess. Um, you know, Florida takes two two games in Gainesville um, against Vanderbilt, becomes just the second team this season to win a series against the Commodores, joining Georgia. And you know, like you like you said, for for Florida, this is really significant, and we can get to that in a second. But for for Vanderbilt, you know, they're still leading the East. They're still really highly ranked in RPI right now. They're number four, uh, and they're, you know, they are they they have all the good things going for them that they do. Where this hurt them, I guess, is that they had a chance to really kind of just put the uh, SEC East. They couldn't have won it over the weekend, but they could effectively have ended the race. They would then have owned series wins against uh, Florida, Tennessee, and South Carolina, the three teams that are within touching distance of them still in the SEC East. So Vanderbilt could have ended that and they fell a game behind Arkansas in the race for the number one overall seed in the SEC tournament. So both of those things are not nothing, but like they're also not super significant. And I guess also if Florida or uh, Vanderbilt rather would, they, they lost some ground to Arkansas in the number one overall seed race in the NCAA tournament. None of these things are particularly meaningful or things that can't be fixed over the final few weeks. Uh, but from Florida's perspective, this was, this was huge to, to get two wins uh, to, it, it helps them in the hosting race. It keeps them in the SEC East race. And it, it, it just kind of changes the vibe around what they where, where Florida is being perceived to be because, you know, at, at this point they had beaten Ole Miss, but otherwise they'd really primarily lost the, the biggest games on their schedule. They lost Tennessee. They got swept at South Carolina. They lost to Miami. Uh, you know, this, uh, this was a chance to add something big to their, to their resume. Yes. From a, a tournament standpoint, but also just from a, a perception standpoint, could they compete with the the upper echelon teams? And uh, it was a reminder that yeah, when uh, when 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 Florida is involved, they, uh, they they definitely can the top end teams if they play to their ability. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, you know, now they're set up really well where they the next series in front of them is a road series at Kentucky and that won't be easy. Kentucky um, has, has obviously been a really competitive team this year, but that's a series you would expect Florida to win. And that set, that sets them up right before, you know, we're going to talk hosting uh, the, the pool of candidates there. So it sets up fairly well for them here. And they, you know, there were, there were a couple of things I think that have kind of spurred this. And we talked about some of them leading up to the weekend over the last couple of weeks for Florida, but, you know, Judd Fabian has looked like a little bit of a different hitter. He's made some adjustments and he's cut down on his strikeouts. He's, you know, been a little more consistent with his power production. So he's trending in, in, in the right direction. Uh, still feels like you're not exactly sure, but, you know, I, I go back and forth on, you know, obviously Frank Wallamon struggled in the first game of the series. And then in the second game of the series, I'm not exactly sure what to make of Tommy Mace throwing eight innings, but also giving up 10 hits and seven runs. Like clearly. Well, it was very weird. He gave up seven runs at the start and then retired 13 of the next 14. Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird, just a weird little start. I mean, I guess you certainly have to give him credit for hanging in there and, and pushing him past that and for Florida and, and the coaching staff to understand the patience there to, to stick with the veteran there. And it obviously it, it pays off in the end, but um, so it, it does feel like Florida has subtly, I don't know that it is super fundamental things have changed here, but subtly, I think they've found some things, you know, certainly when he's at his best, Jack Leftwich has looked good in a, in a relief role, the finale, he was, he was pretty electric actually in that uh, Sunday game, uh, getting the last two and two thirds innings taken care of. So um, it's not just that Florida has kind of backed their way into this. I think sometimes you see these teams that make a late move to host. And oftentimes it happens in the SEC and the ACC, because let's, let's call a spade a spade. You don't always have to work super hard if you're just a really talented team in those conferences to end up hosting. So sometimes you do feel like teams just kind of back their way into it. I think with this Florida team, like it's still clearly not the team we thought it was going to be coming into the season, but there have been some subtle improvements here and there that I think have, have opened up this path and make them a lot more dangerous if you're projecting forward. Uh, I don't know yet who the 16 hosts are going to be. It was a weird week to try and figure out hosts. That's a thing I have to tackle over the next 24 hours as we sit here recording this on a Monday morning. And I don't know where I'll land on Florida, but you know, they, they go to Kentucky next week. And on the one hand, they got to win that. And, you know, you feel like, okay, they just beat Vanderbilt, like they should comfortably win that. But on the other hand, Kentucky is feisty, first of all. And then second of all, Florida just hasn't been anywhere near as good on the road as they have been at home. 25 and 6 at home. They have series wins against Ole Miss and Vanderbilt at home. On the road, they're 5 and 7. And, um, you know, they're they're – correcting that this weekend would be uh, a big deal. Not, not like that they need this series win to show that they can win games on the road, but like it would, it would be nice if they're, to, it would be a nice thing to add to their, their host resume right before the committee pairs down the, the potential host sites. If they could throw on another road series win, which would just be their second of the year. And uh, you know, it's not, it's not, wouldn't be a world shaking series win we're not talking about going into arkansas and winning like that's what they potentially have to do the final weekend of the year but it would it would still be a a conference road series win and 
those are not the easiest thing to come by in college baseball. Uh, but you know, regardless of whether that happens or not, like I do feel like Florida has, has definitely positioned itself at least as a potential host, if not, um, you know, and, and per, perhaps this week I will project the Gators as a host again. We'll we'll see here. But you know, Joe, from a from a Vanderbilt perspective, they went out, and this was this was a little bit of a weird weekend for them. But it also, in other ways, was exactly what happens when things don't go quite according to plan for Vanderbilt. Kamar Rocker was good, but not his best on Friday, and they won eleven to seven. That score line indicates a closer score than it was most of the game, but give Florida credit for fighting back and forcing Vanderbilt to use some of its better relievers in that game, which they definitely did not want to do when they got up as big as they did uh, to, to start the game. You know, at one point they were up 11 to four. Um, you know, so Florida, Florida forced some things. Kamar Rocker didn't go as deep in the game as he sometimes does. And then, you know, things really changed for Vanderbilt the next day. Lighter was not his best, not close to his best. Florida got to him. The wind's blowing out a little bit. They hit some home runs. They win. And then on Sunday, you know, again, uh, Vanderbilt doesn't have, you know, I, we said on the preview pod, like if Florida could get to Sunday with Barco on the mound, they were going to feel really good about their chances. That played out. That's how it went down. And Florida scores five runs in the first four innings, and that was enough. So we know this is a possibility for Vanderbilt. But as this keeps happening, Joe, like does that does this change the way you're thinking about Vanderbilt, or is it just you know they need to? I I, I don't know how they how they work around this. This is just a thing that's always going to be on the table for them if their top two starters aren't pitching lights out. Yeah, I mean, it, it does change things a little bit because it, it, it you know, I'm always going to bet on Rocker and Lighter because those guys didn't forget how to pitch overnight. But it, it does make Vanderbilt feel a little bit more susceptible to this kind of thing. I, I was kind of willing to hand wave a little bit at this, like, eh, you know, Sunday games, like even if they just win 50% of them or 75% of them, let's be honest, because they out talent most teams they've played. But like that's still fine. Like, you know, cause they're not really losing Friday or Saturday games. And now, you know, rocker had his moments where there were a couple times where he was a little more on the edge there. And, and lighter now has had a few weeks in a row here where it feels like as much as anything that maybe a little bit of a, a book is out now to where teams are having a little more success. And, and now it's all about making adjustments to adjustments and we'll, we'll give him the time to, to do that obviously. But you know, it, it feels like they are kind of allowing for this a little bit, Vanderbilt is, because, you know, the way they set up their pitching to where, you know, they use they use Murphy earlier in the, in the series, but he threw two innings on Sunday, and then they use Riley to back up McIlvain on Sundays, and those are two of their better bullpen guys, and those guys were great on Sunday. The issue is when you're kind of holding those guys um, or holding whoever it is, whoever your best guys are, in the bullpen, whoever you judge that to be. Cause I, you know, I don't see these guys every day. Maybe my assessment is wrong, but if you're going to hold guys for Sunday for an eventuality where you get three, maybe four innings out of your starting pitcher, like the trouble can't be the bullpen earlier in the series, but they also struggled in that regard. Like, yes, the, the, the game on Friday was not as close as the score would have you suggest, 
The flip side of that, though, is the bullpen struggled to the point where Florida was able to kind of squint their eyes a little bit and feel like maybe they got back in the game. And then you look at the game, the, the second game in the series, and Vanderbilt's offense was fine. They did more than enough to win that game. But, you know, not only did Leiter struggle, but then, you know, Hunter Owen comes in and, and can't really put out the fire right away. And so now they're they're really in a hole. So um, if you're going to kind of stack those guys like that for Sundays, you really need the first two days to be a little bit steadier on the mound than what we saw for Vanderbilt. And that's kind of the trouble because, you know, obviously if rocker and lighter were the rocker and lighter we saw for the first six, seven weeks of the season, eight weeks, maybe it's not an issue at all. But when you combine those two not being quite as sharp and the fact that Vanderbilt sometimes struggles to find the right guys in the bullpen, you know, it really starts to beg the question of like, how much can you really wait to try to, to stack guys on Sunday, or do you have to maybe try to put out some fires earlier in the weekend with your best arms? Well, I mean, the thing about Vanderbilt is that like the plan definitely is get quality starts out of rocker and lighter and neither of them delivered that. And so that puts you in a hole according to, to your plan. This isn't, this isn't Arkansas where, you know, four is enough and they'll figure it out beyond that or, you know, Mississippi State where like, well, okay, five, maybe six, we'll get you out of there. This is a case where they need to get more length out of those two guys. And if they aren't going to get it, it's just always going to be a problem because that's just not how they're set up. Like Riley pitched well in relief, but he's struggled as a Sunday starter. And him and McIlvain have kind of been trading that back and forth all year. And clearly like they like the idea of piggybacking them and because they're not sure it just doesn't feel like right now they're sure who's going to be better on a given day. And, you know, they have a couple other relievers that they trust, but it's not, it's not the 2019 Vanderbilt bullpen. Like ultimately that that's just the situation here, but it's not the deepest bullpen in the country. And if they don't get the starts that they need from rocker and lighter, then they get behind the sticks and somebody has got to bail them out, whether it's the offense, whether it's a reliever stepping up, whatever it is. Uh, but now it's four weeks in a row that either Locker or Rocker or Lighter have lost a start. And, uh, you know, it, it shouldn't be surprising that that's happening. You know, guys go through ups and downs over the course of a season. Like you said, Rocker went through it a little bit. He got better and he seems to, to be pitching, you know, like his, his best self these days. You know, Friday wasn't his greatest start, but it was fine. And now Lighter, I don't know. I haven't dug into it to know precisely what the adjustment the league has made against him, but something sure seems like they figured something out. And now he has to make the adjustment back. And this is part of being, you know, for all the talk about like, Oh, Jack Leiter, you know, he's not, he's not a freshman that, that you hear coming out of, of places anytime that I release the freshman of the year watch and Jack Leiter's number one, like, yeah, but, like, he's also never been through an SEC season. Like, I hear you that Vanderbilt lists him as a sophomore, and, like, we list him as a second-year freshman for a reason. But, like, I, I get you. But, like, also, he's never done this before, and this is part of this is part of it. Like, playing a long conference season, teams really start gearing in on you. There are a lot of people watching a lot of film in the SEC. They'll find something. And if they, if they have, like, you're going to have to adjust back. That's just what baseball is at, at this level. So I, it'll be interesting to see what he can do from here, whether it's just been a 
couple lesser weeks, maybe some bad luck, some windblown home runs, whatever, uh, or if there's something that that actually has been discovered that can be exploited moving forward. All right, Joe, let's uh, let's move on to uh, Clemson sweeping Louisville. We'll get into uh, into that, which is actually historic, and, and I'll explain why it's historic in a second. But first, check this out. All right, Joe, like I said, Clemson, they swept Louisville this weekend. That had a lot of impact on the ACC race, on the hosting race, on the at-large race, everything. Like this was, to me, the, the most impactful series of the weekend and or the most impactful upset of the weekend, I should say. And, and it was also historic. This is the first time that Louisville, as an ACC member, has been swept. It was also the first time Louisville had been swept in any series since 2011. It wasn't quite 10 years. They didn't quite make it 10 years. It was, I guess, late 2011 that Seton Hall swept 2011 Louisville. Um, shouts to the old Big East. But it was, it's been a decade since they got swept. And here, Clemson, a team that I have never really totally ran off for dead, but certainly had never expected was going to be capable of uh, dropping a, a sweep on Louisville. Uh, they've now won six in a row. They're maybe the hottest team in the in the ACC. I mean, whether you want to include the Oma Irish in that or not, I don't know. But like they're they're scorching hot, having swept Wake Forest and Louisville. And now I have to say that they look pretty safely in the field after you know looking for a time like they might miss regions. It's uh it's been quite the turnaround. And, you know, we can get into the impact this had for Louisville, but, you know, let's just talk about Clemson and, and acknowledge what, what a weekend it was for the Titans. Yeah, no doubt about that. Really seemed to kind of hammer home, um, you know, Clemson, like you said, as, as a postseason team and, and putting, it kind of reminds me a little bit of, and Clemson is, you know, a game ahead of where NC State is, but it felt a little bit similar to NC State sweeping last weekend against Virginia Tech, where it was like, okay, you know, and, and like I said, I think Clemson's a little ahead of them in the pecking order, but it felt like it had a similar effect in terms of announcing that, oh, you know, this is, after some ups and downs, this is probably a postseason team when it's uh, when it's all said and done. It's also, I think, just another example of something I tweeted about over the weekend where the ACC continues, with the exception of Notre Dame, which is kind of running away with things. Like, the rest of the ACC is kind of squishing together in the middle here, and there's not, you know, much of a, a defined bottom. If you want to lump Wake, BC, and Duke into a little group there and call that the BC just, the uh, they beat Miami this weekend, so. That's true. They have that at your, own, at your own peril. They have moved ahead of Wake Forest and now in that division. So, but those three teams, I think, are, are fairly clearly defined bottom. And then you've got this squish in the middle outside of, of Notre Dame. And that's, um, it, it'll make for an interesting stretch run, but certainly it's hard to know what to make game to game. I, you know, and, and with Clemson, I think, I, you know, I looked at this team a few weeks ago. I, I dropped in on a Sunday game when they were here in Raleigh. I, you know, I didn't really, um, you know, I wasn't really covering it. I just kind of popped in and just saw it. And, and, you know, I remember looking at that team then and I was like, and, and they won that series against NC state, but, you know, I just kind of remember thinking like, I had a couple thoughts. Like I had, I kind of wondered, you know, what are they from a starting pitching standpoint? Like, I, I'm just not sure what they're getting from game to game. Like it was kind of, you know, roles kind of were nebulous. And some of that I think is just moving guys in and out, but it also looked like maybe they were trying to build from the, from the bullpen a little bit, 
Certainly with a guy like Jeffrey Gilbert, you can do a little bit of that. But offensively, it was like, where's the where's the punch? Where's the star power here? You know, it's it, we, you and I have talked about it. it's been a while since Clemson, I guess, hasn't been that long since Seth Beer was there, but it feels like it's been a while since they've had a Seth Beer level. Well, also Logan Davidson. <laughs> yeah, I guess Logan Davidson, that's a good, that's a good example. You know, I um, you know, I feel like with Logan Davidson, the discussion about him is always kind of you have to have like two separate conversations about him because he was incredibly productive and yet there was always a feeling. And some of it I think was from like the, the evaluator community that maybe, you know, there was untapped potential there. He wasn't this, or he wasn't that. And his game got picked apart a little bit. So maybe that's part of, part of what colors the discussion there for me, but long story short, it feels like Clemson's in a little different place where you see what Caden Grice did on Friday, you know, three home runs, drove in eight runs and, you know, and, you know, he pitch a little bit like the pitching is kind of, you know, kind of it's very much secondary and not going Indeed. great, but like uh, you can't ignore it either. Like yeah. it, it is a part of the game. Indeed. But it's certainly the power bat is the thing. And, you know, he, um, but, but I think, I think they've got a star on their hands and Caden Grice moving forward. He's up to 12 home runs now on the year and is hitting 358. Um, you know, and, and as he matures, you assume some of the stuff like, you know, his strikeout rate is pretty high right now. So you assume that's going to come down as, as time goes on. But, but I think he's a bona fide star a guy. You can build a lineup around moving forward. And the starting pitching was better this past weekend. Mac England was good. I think, you know, Keyshawn Askew was good. I listened to on the drive back from Norfolk. I listened to a decent amount of that, the middle game in the series and, and Askew was, he ends up giving up four runs and six and two thirds, but I think he was better than that. That would suggest to you that he was so, you know, they, they got a little better starting pitching and that was a little bit of a question. So certainly seems like if nothing else, I, I don't know how high the ceiling is for this team once we talk about postseason stuff, but it does certainly seem like they're rounding into form a little bit. Yeah, I, I definitely think that, you know, this is a team, I wouldn't want to see them in my regional. I don't know that I would project them to win a regional, uh, but, you know, the fact that they did what they did against Louisville, uh, only one of those games was really close. That was the Saturday game. They find a way to win that, but the other two games were not close at all, particularly. And, you know, that, that does show you that that's the, that's probably the ceiling. Like that's, this, it it would be hard, I think, for, to ask Clemson to play better than they played this weekend. Uh, But they have some good arms. You mentioned Askew and Gilbert and England. And one thing that, that Clemson as a staff does really well, is just they pound the strike zone. Askew has 52 Ks and four walks in 42 innings. Matt Clark has 35 Ks, one walk in 37 innings. Uh, there are a whole bunch of guys. Like, those are the two best examples of that. But as a, as a team, they got 363 strikeouts and only 124 walks in 347 innings. Like, that's – they're not going to give you a whole lot of free 90s. Um, you know, they field okay. Uh, could be a little better fielding team. Uh, but they're they're not gonna they're not gonna let you the, the pitching staff is going to make you beat them. And right now they seem to have found a combination of guys that is working and that your teams are having trouble beating. And Caden Grice has been great. They've got some other good pieces around him. Uh, it, it's uh, it's not the flashiest team, but it's a team right now that's playing really well that has, a really good combination uh, of, of parts uh, that they, they feel like the sum of their parts really, as opposed to just being a star power team. And, 
you know, right now that's, that's working for them. And so we'll see where that takes them into May, but as they, as they stand, this looks like a, a, a team that's definitely regional caliber. The one negative about them, especially in a regional is that they are like so many teams in college baseball better at home than they are on the road, just five and nine on the road, uh, six and 10 away from, from Clemson. If you include the neutral sites, and the next couple of weeks are all on the road uh, with Georgia Tech and Florida State. So we'll see how that goes. Georgia Tech's really fighting it themselves right now. They just lost a series to Kennesaw State. Um, don't want to overreact to that. Sometimes these non-conference series late in the year becomes hard for the uh, a team like Georgia Tech to, to lock in in the same way that they have been. But on the other hand, Georgia Tech has been trending in the wrong direction for the last month anyway. So you, you can view that Kennesaw State series however you want, but this weekend's going to be massive for the Yellow Jackets and for the Tigers to you know try and uh, show that they can be a better team away uh, away from Kingsmore Stadium there. But I, I, I like what Clemson has here. I like what they did. I, I think this is a team... Uh, worthy of, of looking out for down this down the stretch here. Now, Joe, on the flip side, Louisville, um, this was crushing. And, you know, I talked about how I don't know, am I going to host Florida? Am I going to project Florida as I host this week? Am I not? Uh, I'm also now in a situation where I don't know what the argument for Louisville hosting is anymore, other than just a belief that they're one of the 16 best teams in the country. But I don't, I don't know what, what we can prop them up with anymore because previously we've talked about how their RPI situation is not good, but I believed it was going to continue to improve, even if it wasn't ever going to become great. Uh, but if they could have won a road series at Clemson, that would have really helped things. Instead, they lose. They're right back to where they were last week um, or a couple weeks ago, even they're into the fifties. And that's not, that's not good. They're now they've lost touch with Notre Dame at the top of the division and you know it's it's just it's a 23 and 14 team it's just another one of these middle of the pack ACC teams and you know I, they, they've fallen behind some of the other teams in in the pecking order I would think but on the other hand you know they have they do have series wins against teams like Florida State so it's a it's a confusing resume but I, at this time I I don't know what I could really prop them up with as a host anymore yeah, it's hard. It's really hard to know. I mean, really, the, it, it feels like there are two things it has going for it. One is this the general feeling that it's one of the one of the best teams, you know, certainly in the ACC. And, and, and we should say, yes, they've lost touch with Notre Dame at the top, but they're still like right there with the rest of the teams for number two in the ACC state. Right. Absolutely. So that, that's the other thing is just like this this feeling we have of like, OK, so if we're talking about true host resumes in a normal year. Notre Dame, got it. Okay, then what? Like, are are we are we gonna have one ACC host? Probably not, right? So it's like, okay, maybe you extend an olive branch to Pitt as like a new host, you know, a place that hasn't hosted before, and that's kind of having a host in Pennsylvania is useful for travel standpoint. Okay, got it. So we're we just gonna have two, like maybe I don't know, <laughs> like, but that's the thing is the answer is I don't know. Uh, <laughs> they they have a what seems like a reasonably easy finish to the season, but I also that's also been distorted by the ACC this year. We're like, they have Duke at home, UNC on the road and Miami at home. And that seems fairly, that certainly is manageable. 
but it, I, I, I would be inclined to say it's fairly easy, but I don't even know in the ACC anymore, like what's easy and what's not. Because the other thing about it is UNC and Miami are going to have something to play for in those series. So like Louisville's going to get, going to get, you know, a shot from those two teams, certainly because those two teams have fallen towards, towards at or perhaps below the bubble. We'll have to, I guess you will see when you put the field together this week, but th- those say Miami's teams, still bubble in UNC now questionable, uh, maybe bubble out. They've fallen above under 500 overall, but Miami 24 and 15, 15 and 14 series win against Florida. Like they're maybe yeah, they're on the three line trade. now as opposed to the two line, but they're still, they're still doing okay. Just as a quick, uh, to kind of close a loop on something you mentioned earlier about their being swept for the first time since 2011. So they were members of the big East, as you, as you said, in, in 2011, uh, just to give you an idea of how much things have changed in that time um, was that, um, the teams that were included in the Big East at that time are teams that are, we still have some teams that are in the Big East. We also have teams that are in the Big 12, the ACC, and the American involved in, in the Big East. That's how, how splintered that, that old Big East, um, that old Big East went. And also, I think 2011 serves as, I'd have to go back and look at the year to year, but I feel like that's one of the few years when like, Dan McDonald was still getting it rolling at Louisville because they came in sixth that year in the Big East. And like, there were very yeah, that's few long years. that's long enough ago that they were not like consistent regional teams quite yet. Right. They it, were, it was about to happen, but yeah. it wasn't quite there. Yeah. One of the few years where they really kind of had a down year under, under coach Mack. So uh, just a, might as well be a lifetime ago in terms of conference membership and in terms of the way the, the program is rolling. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a strange one. They, uh, to to just get beat the way they did like i don't know they didn't play last week as you'll recall that pit series got canceled i don't know if that plays into it it's certainly not an excuse but it just it wasn't it wasn't what we expected at all and you know frankly i i'm a little lost as to what to make of louisville right now um well yeah you you mentioned like look if pit doesn't host the acc only has one team hosting like that's a what a, what a world. Oh, no doubt. Like, I think the thing about Louisville, because I, so I agree with you, right? On its face, I don't know what to make of Louisville because it's a talented team that for the most part has won games this year, has, but has tripped up a couple times and even sometimes in winning looks pretty ugly. But like, you know, I'm starting to just wonder if like, this is just probably who they are, where the injuries on the pitching staff have been such that it might be a struggle sometimes. And like offensively it's, you know, Henry Davis and a, and a couple of, of other guys, but some of the, the stars that we expected just really aren't they're They just aren't coming around. And that, that, I mean, maybe that means you get into a regional and Hey, you know, if, um, you know, Levi Usher has his best game of the season in a regional, then, you know, all is kind of forgiven in that regard. But um, I think this, you know, for better or worse for Louisville, I think this is, this kind of just is what it is. I pulled up the 2011 Louisville stats. We got uh, got Chad Green on the team. Got Jeff Thompson, Tony Zich, Dace Kime, uh, Adam Angle, Stuart Ijams. This is, a, this is a blast from the past. Was there a Whiting on that roster? For a while, it uh, seems like there was always a Whiting on the roster. There was. There was not. There was oh, Cole okay. Sturgeon though. Who? Uh, oh yeah. Mac. Uh, loved to talk about that. Uh, but yeah, it's uh a decade ago in college baseball terms is, is a lifetime ago. So to not be swept for a decade, what an accomplishment that is. What an accomplishment. Like Louisville is 
kind of unique. Actually, I, I think they are just straight up unique among teams that have moved up uh, the way they have to, to new conferences, the way they came into the ACC and immediately bossed it. Uh, nobody else has done that. TCU had a very down year in its first year in the Big 12. Um, you know, the teams that have moved into the Pac-12, you know, it, it, it hasn't, hasn't been smooth sailing for them. Uh, you know, the SEC, A&M, like, took a, a little, it took a minute to, to get their feet under them in the SEC. Um, you know, Missouri hasn't really, and, and even Nebraska coming from the Big 12 to the Big 10, much has been made about how they were expected to come in and, and really run the conference. And then it took them like five years to win a Big 10 title. And Louisville's, Louisville's the only one that, that walked into its new major conference and had no problems right from the start. And, and so to go, was it six seasons, I guess, uh, six ACC seasons before they get swept? I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable. And then, again, for, for Clemson, for this Clemson team, which really had been struggling until uh, getting right against Wake Forest last weekend to be the ones to, to pull the sweep off a uh, very, very impressive weekend there for the Tigers. All right, Joe, um, let's, uh, let's head to Texas here for a second. Um, Longhorns came into this weekend in Austin, tied for first place with TCU. But first, and they were they're they they are facing TCU in Fort Worth this coming weekend. But first, they had to contend with the Red Raiders. We talked about how this felt like a trap series, uh, where you know the Red Raiders coming off of getting upset at home themselves by Baylor, falling out of the Big Twelve title race, and now UT could very easily, you know start looking at, at that TCU series as saying, well, this is for the big 12 title. I don't know that that's what happened here, but the result, whether it happened or not is the same. And, and tech comes out wins on Friday, you know, that nobody had beaten Texas um, in game one of a series since opening day, they beat time Madden. It was time Madden's worst start of the year. They got to time Madden in a way no one has, including Mississippi state on opening day. And then they, they bounce back on Saturday and win again uh, and, and hold Texas off on Sunday because that Saturday game was suspended um, you know, in the eighth inning and, and the Horns mounted uh, a comeback attempt. But Tech escapes with that win. The Horns do win game three, but damage was done. And now Texas is, uh, you know, they, they've fallen two games behind the frogs and now have to go to, to TCU and absolutely have to win that series uh, because otherwise TCU would clinch the big 12 with the series win this weekend. So a lot happening there in Austin. Uh, what do you make of, of all of the comings and goings there? Yeah, definitely. So it felt like a trap series going in. And as I was writing the series up for the top 25 recaps last night, looking at the way the series played out, it feels like a trap series after the fact. And so by that, I mean, this did not feel like a situation where Texas Tech goes into this series, wins this series, and you come out of it feeling different about Texas Tech. You know, maybe if they had swept and done so emphatically on Sunday, maybe that changes the calculus a little bit. But I go into it thinking like, yeah, this this was kind of, you know, just a, a trap series win where, you know, the offense, the Texas Tech offense got to Ty Madden and then got to Tristan Stevens and on back-to-back -back days did the work early and then kind of held on for a couple of wins. But when you look at the totality of it, it's not like the Texas Tech offense went crazy. 
you know, there weren't 14 hits or 12 hits or whatever, or home runs left and right. Uh, they did just enough on a couple of days to get it done. And then some of the bugaboos for Texas tech, which like we talked about the offense drying up a little bit. I think we saw that they win, they win two games with six hits in each game. And then the starting pitching for Texas tech, you know, Micah Dallas gave them a good start in game two. Um, you know, maybe that's something you hang your hat on. Certainly if, you know, he's the, he's the type of guy that, you know, if Texas tech makes a deep postseason run, you could see, you know, starting their first game in Omaha, for example, if they're fortunate enough to get that far, like he's, he's that good. And, and it seems like he's maybe rounding into form a little bit, but they once again, didn't get a great start from Patrick Monteverde and they didn't get a good start from Mason Montgomery in the finale. And then the bullpen behind Montgomery faltered a little bit. And so Texas tech won the series, but this feels like a series that kind of fundamentally affected Texas and the way they're looking at the big 12 race. I don't know that it really fundamentally affected anything about, about Texas tech. Like, I think it's, you know, still a very talented and good team, but they're just shorthanded and they did enough this past weekend to win a series, but I didn't see it as being particularly revelatory in that regard in any way. Well, I don't think it taught us anything about Texas Tech, and I think everything that we thought coming out of the Baylor series is largely still true. Um, you know, the injuries clearly have taken a toll. It looks like Tech is just a couple pitchers short this year, potentially. But that being said, this was significant that they got off the map, that they didn't let it fester. Uh, and they go out and they do something that nobody had done to, to the horns all year long. Uh, so I think that's, that's significant uh, and, and does give tech fans something, some good reason for hope moving forward. Also just winning a road series is important for, uh, for the Red Raiders. Uh, after losing on the road at K-State, they've now won consecutive road series going to Morgantown and to Austin, two of the tougher trips for them in the Big 12, I would say. So that's important, especially if they don't play a regional at home. But furthermore, they are now 13 in RPI and 10 and 8 in the Big 12 and look pretty convincingly like the third best team in the Big 12, despite that Baylor loss. Baylor is fourth. They have games in hand, but they also already have eight losses in the Big 12. So Tech is probably going to finish ahead of the Bears. Uh, Oklahoma State lost Bedlam this weekend. So, you know, the Cowboys are very firmly behind the Red Raiders at this point. So Tech is very much alive in the hosting race. If anyone wrote them off last week in that, like that was a mistake. They, they, had a chance this weekend to dig themselves out of whatever hole they put themselves in and that's what they did so you know they have to they're gonna have to finish strong but i would expect lubbock to be one of the 20 potential sites announced in a week and as i've said many times you don't want to play tech in lubbock so i i don't think this team's going to omaha asking them to do something two weeks in a row against premium competition with uh you know, a team that has dealt with as many injuries as they've dealt with and the fact that they're going to have to go on the road at least for Super Regionals, probably barring an upset. Uh, I mean, that's asking a lot right now, but I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know where I stand on Tech right now, but I, I do think that they're, uh, they're a really quality team that, you know, I, I just don't want to count out a Tim Tadlock team ultimately. Yeah, no, agreed. And it, yeah, if, and if I was downplaying, like, this is a big deal for Tech, I certainly didn't mean it to come off that way. It's just that, 
like the flaws are the flaws and the upsides are the upsides. And, and what we saw this weekend, I don't think changed a whole lot of that, but it is a big series win. You're absolutely right about that. They are back in the hosting mix. They've got Illinois, Chicago at a conference this coming weekend for four. Um, I don't know what UIC's RPI is. That probably won't help a ton. Um, certainly don't want to lose anything there, but then they finish once that's passed, as long as they get put in the host pool, they've got Oklahoma and Kansas, which is manageable. Oklahoma looking better these days back on the bubble, but you certainly feel good about them winning, winning those series. Um, yeah, this, I mean, in some ways, this doesn't feel like a too far off from kind of a classic Texas tech team because if, you know, if they had maybe one more bat that was really humming, you know, if noisy was healthy, I guess, or, you know, maybe one more pitcher on the mound that was really, throwing his best right now, it probably wouldn't feel too far off from some of these tech teams we've had where, I mean, you and I have had the conversation as they've gone to Omaha in the past, like, yeah, I don't really know who their best pitchers are, but it just kind of keeps working. And, you know, they run, they'll play five games in Omaha and run out four different lineups, you know, featuring like 12 or 13 different players. And they always just kind of get it done. And so maybe, you know, I'm with you, like, you know, seeing them run all the way through to Omaha this year seems like a little bit of a long shot, but um, it probably isn't far off from being teams we've seen do it before anyway. So I, I certainly don't want to underestimate that prospect. And I, you know, again, it's really hard to judge mentality of teams, but what if getting the old Texas tech chip on your shoulder, rather than, you know, having to manufacture it yourself or like just, you know, not, not playing as the big 12 favorite or the big 12 champion anymore. Like that might be, that might be useful for a team. Uh, like tech, especially one that's a little bit younger, um, you know, maybe uh, maybe that can can rally them down the stretch here and, and into the postseason. We'll uh, we'll just have to wait and see on that. For the Horns, um, other than knocking them, you know, right to the edge of, of the Big Twelve race again, they they have to go to Fort Worth and get a result this weekend. Otherwise, the the Big Twelve race is over be one of the earliest conference uh, races to be officially over, but uh, the frogs can do that this weekend. It's on the table. I, you know, Texas still really highly ranked in RPI still second in the big 12 still would probably project them as a top eight seed. Uh, but again, like I, they can't let this fester next week. They, they need to come out and, and do something. Otherwise they, they would risk, falling behind tech in the the big 12 race at which point uh you know you're probably not a top eight seed anymore yeah i think with 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 texas i think there were some i think some of the signs even in a series loss i think there were some real positives to take away there i mean if for no other reason then you know if you're if you're if these are the the worst starts that you know, certainly that the madden has had and then maybe even tristan stevens i don't know i'd have to go back and look at game by game but you know, that's, that's probably unlikely to happen, particularly in the same weekend. Again, it's kind of similar to the rocker lighter thing uh, with Vanderbilt. And then even on Sundays, you know, Colby Kubitschek doesn't give them the start they're looking for. They have a quick hook there because they're thinking, boy, we, we can't get swept here. So they make, uh, you know, they make a quick change there and throw in Pete Hansen and, and Pete Hansen gives them, uh, you know, arguably the best outing he's had all year. I think almost definitively when you consider the opponent, the best outing he's had all year with seven and two thirds with one run allowed. And, um, that is deserving of just like a, a special mention too, because I mean, the discussion about Pete Hansen and what he would be coming into this year versus what he has actually been could not be in more different places. 
because this is a guy that had basically no lead up to the season for a myriad reasons. Um, and he's been extremely effective. And I, I think it creates a situation where Texas probably feels like it truly has four guys. It feels pretty good about being quote unquote weekend starters, because that's what Hanson gave you this weekend. It's just that he didn't start the game. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the, the stuff isn't what it can be. It probably just won't be this season. And, you know, we'll, we'll step to see where that goes from here, but he was certainly effective throwing 88, 89 yesterday. And, uh, that's what they need. They just need him to be effective. Uh, it, 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 whether he's going to throw as hard as he can or not, you know, whatever, but it's, uh, it's definitely a promising development. He's been really good in a midweek role for them. And, you know, he's, however far they go in the tournament, he's going to have to play an important role for them. So, uh, like, yes, like you, like you said, definitely worthy of, uh, of a mention here. Let's, uh, let's flip over to where you were this weekend. And that was Norfolk old dominion and Charlotte playing, uh, the, the second of their four game series here against each other for the conference USA East division control and Charlotte won the series in Charlotte a week ago. They took three games. Old Dominion, though, comes back, flips the result, and they take three games in Norfolk. We're right back to where we started with Charlotte leading Old Dominion by game in the standings. What's changed, I guess, is that they both boosted their RPIs into the top 15. And um, I don't know if they both can host and Louisiana Tech and Southern Miss, all four of these Conference USA teams, which are now ranked in the top 25. Um, all have cases to be made. Uh, you know, we have LaTeX as the number one team in the rankings, and they're probably the strongest host case for me, despite having an RPI behind that of the East teams. That those wins against Ole Miss and Arkansas carrying a lot of weight there for for LaTeX. But you know, Charlotte and Old Dominion now both in the top fifteen. I at least the division winner is going to host. We'll see. We'll see if the other one can. But it was uh, it was a big deal for Old Dominion because if they had lost this series, that would just not be on the table for them anymore. Yeah, for sure. That was um, that was big because it, you know, the, the, I think all four of those conference USA teams are like solidly in the field. Like I, I think those teams are just there's very little they could do that, barring uncharacteristic collapses over the last few weeks to not be postseason teams. They're just all solidly in. But yeah, when you talk about hosting. I think the four teams have just done, they've done, some of it is in their control, some of it is out of their control, but those four teams in CUSA, LaTeX, Southern Miss, Old Dominion, and Charlotte have A, done everything they need to do to all be put in position to absolutely maximize their seasons in terms of not just being postseason teams, but maybe hosting. They certainly look all like number two seeds at a bare minimum. So they've done that. And also the conference has broken just right where all of those teams are good. All of those teams have good metrics. All of those teams play each other, but not too much. Like they don't play all of the other good teams. So they don't take on too many losses. They don't beat each other up too much. And then the rest of the league is so mediocre. Like there's really not much of a middle class. Like if maybe you want to say FAU is a little bit there. They- I, I would say FAU and UTSA and thus ends the middle class of, of CUSA this year. Yeah, so the rest of the league has just been so mediocre that they're not taking losses to really, save for, you know, LaTeX split with Marshall, and that was 
surprising and weird and it was at home. So that's just a, a weird blip. But save for that, they're not taking losses to any of the other teams in the conference. Like most of their losses have come to each other. So that has broken exactly right, I think, for these teams to be in this position. And, and we talk about, you know, before, before I get to, you know, specifics about the series, you know, when we talk about, you know, where are the other ACC hosts coming from, you know, or does the Big Ten actually end up getting one? They're probably going to throw at least one team into that pool. But now the Big Ten is beating up on each other a little more. It's kind of becoming harder and harder to know exactly what's going to play out there. A league like Conference USA could be in a position to gobble those up. I don't, you know, <laughs> all four of them would just be wild. But certainly I think there could, there could be at least two. Um, that certainly seems to be in play. And it, there's an opportunity there for them to fill in a little bit of these power vacuums that have been created in some of these other leagues. Yeah, it's uh, this is this is where it's coming from. Uh, if there are going to be hosts outside of the the typical situation, this is this is definitely it. Uh, you though came away this weekend. You know, we we have Old Dominion ranked ahead of Charlotte again, which is returning it to where it was two weeks ago before they started this uh, this saga. Uh, and you came away from it believing that the Monarchs were the uh the better team and it should be noted that old dominion and charlotte split the two games you were at they then finished the the series with the monarchs winning two games so it's not even just that you saw the monarchs you know roast charlotte on sunday which they did they went 10 to nothing in seven innings going away uh so it's not like your opinion was swayed that much by that it was more just what you saw i i would guess from the two games that you you were in the park yeah, and then you know I listened to the the third on the on the way home. Um, boy, that the pace in that one is that was that was a, a good decision. I, I'm disappointed anytime I have to leave without seeing the last game of a day or something. But that ended up being a really good decision by Joe because the pace on that that second seven inning game was just absolutely brutal. It took him like two hours to get through four innings. So um, <laughs> good 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 idea by Joe to be like you know I'm gonna try to get home at a reasonable time here tonight instead. So. But yeah, I, so I thought Old Dominion was the better team coming, kind of coming into this, even knowing what happened last weekend. And I would have had to change my tune a little bit had Charlotte gone to Norfolk and, and won the series or maybe even split. But I think these two teams are pretty similar in the way that they tried to win games. I think they're both pretty, pretty balanced teams um, in terms of they can beat you in a few different ways. And I just think that Old Dominion is better at that. Like, I think they're just a little bit better in certainly offensively. And I think even with what I saw from the pitching staffs, I even think I'd give um, Char- or Old Dominion a little bit of an advantage here. Charlotte, I think has the more talented pitching staff, but this is a Charlotte team that their ERA now as a team in conference play is over six. And Bryce McGowan has been fairly mediocre um, you know, once conference play has started, uh, you know, same thing with Austin Morosis and Andrew Lindsay. Lindsay was good against Old Dominion, so that was a, a little bit of a standout piece there. But Matt Brooks, ERA over nine in conference play. Um, you know, Christian Lothis has has really been super steady out of the bullpen for them. But outside of that, it's a pitching staff that's really struggling in, in conference play. And it feels like maybe, um, you know, that they, they will certainly have to reverse that trend if they're going to have success in the postseason, whether they're hosting or not. Um, but Old Dominion kind of on a, on a, uh, on a different note is kind of a similar deal, but their guys don't have 
the stuff that Charlotte's pitchers have, but they were just so steady. And we saw it again this weekend with on the last two days of, of the, the series, the last two games, I should say, you know, Hunter Gregory and Ryan Moore both throw seven inning complete games and they just don't have to tax the bullpen. Um, but the big thing with Old Dominion is the offense. And yes, it's a fairly offensive environment. Yes, whether you believe the chemistry building theory for why the wind blows out, or if you just want to say that it's close to the shoreline and it's right on the banks of a river. And so you're always going to have wind blowing there. And sometimes it's just going to blow out. So no matter what theory you believe there, the wind does blow out from time to time. But I will note that the wind really wasn't a factor after the first game of the series. The first game of the series, absolutely. There were some windblown extra base hits, including a windblown Kyle Battle home run. But the last two games in particular where they blew out Charlotte, that was all them. It's a physical offense. It's an offense that is kind of mixes older players and younger players. And frankly, I think their younger players are more exciting players. Like I'm super excited about Carter Trice and Kenny Lavari. And Trice has been a lot more successful this year than Lavari, but I think Lavari's got a chance to be electric by the time he's done. Like the tools are there. He plays with his hair on fire. He's fun to watch. Um, so it's it's just a really good team. It reminds me a little bit also of, of Louisiana Tech in terms of just being able to lean on a, a group of veterans who have been there for a long time and sprinkling in younger players to fill in some some key positions and allowing those younger players to maybe go through some fits and starts and some inconsistency because they can lean so heavily on the guys who have been around the block. So a 4-4 split in the series, but I think ODU certainly comes out of the eight games feeling better about itself. And I don't think that's just because it most recently won the series. I think they feel better about where they are from the way they're playing now. And health-wise, um, you know, Charlotte, David McCabe, um, didn't play. He's obviously been nursing injuries throughout the entirety of the season. And then Dominic Pallali, uh, one of the more exciting position players and outfielder, left the game in the third game of the series with what appeared to be a pretty significant leg injury. He was carted off. Um, so that's concerning as well. So they are hurting a little bit from an injury standpoint. So I think the Monarchs feel a little bit better about their position moving forward, even as Charlotte continues to have perhaps the better resume when you talk about a, a you know hosting standpoint. Yeah, definitely going to be interesting to follow that down the stretch. I'm going to be fascinated to see how many of these teams they include on the short list to host. Uh, and then, you know, the Conference USA tournament is hosted by La Tech this year. How much is that going to matter? Uh, we'll just have to, to wait and see on all of that. But we, uh, uh, we're, definitely, we're definitely seeing some really good teams in Conference USA. And it should be noted here that Southern Miss moved into the top 25 for the first time this season. So we're now ranking four Conference USA teams, uh, and they're all within five spots of each other. Um, it's uh, they're, they're all just good flat out and partying and, like it's uh, 2006 in conference USA. Yeah. I, uh, I need to look up. I, di I didn't do it last night. I need to look up the last time we ranked four conference USA teams in one week. It, it, it has been a long time. I can promise you that. Uh, so just a, a continuation of a very impressive year for that conference. All right, let's uh, let's flip over to the big 10 here. And before we get out of here, Joe, um, I spent a lot of my day Sunday focused on the Big Ten in part because that Vanderbilt-Florida game was rain-delayed for a while or lightning-delayed. I never bothered to really find out what was going on there. They were in a weather delay and uh, ultimately really screwed up the uh, the ESPN schedule. It was supposed to be on ESPN2, and 
they had to they had to move that one around a little bit, as it were. But I was watching a lot of Big Ten baseball. Indiana was playing Iowa. We talked about that on the preview podcast. Iowa won on Friday night. Then Indiana came back, won the next two days uh, to win the series. That result combined with Rutgers sweeping Nebraska. Yes, Rutgers swept Nebraska. That's Rutgers' first sweep uh, in Big Ten play. And they did so on the road against the team that was in first place. Uh, So one of the bigger upsets of the weekend. Uh, combined with that and Michigan splitting four games against Illinois, they were supposed to play in a pod with Northwestern in Illinois, Northwestern wound up getting COVID, uh, and they had to sit out, but Illinois and Michigan played four games on their field anyway. And because Michigan split those two games and North, um, and, uh, Nebraska got swept, Indiana finishes the weekend in first place in the big 10. The Hoosiers move into the top 25 for the first time this year as a result. And Rutgers, having gone five and one the last two weeks on the road against Michigan and Nebraska, two teams that we feel very strongly about being really good teams. Um, they are in the, the top three of the standings there still. Rutgers is now very much in the NCAA tournament hunt. They haven't made regionals since 2007, but they, uh, they're alive and fighting here uh, as, as they enter the final month of the year. And that in itself is a significant accomplishment for Steve Owens in his second season there in Piscataway. So Joe, we can take this any number of ways. We can just talk about Indiana beating Iowa. We could talk about Rutgers. We could talk about the state of the big 10 race and how I'm now considering that the big 10, instead of just getting three teams, maybe four, maybe it should be like, they're going to get four and maybe they'll get five because there are seven real contenders in the Big Ten right now, and cutting even two teams off of that and saying, well, these two teams just aren't going to get bids, it's starting to become harder as the as the race tightens. So uh, take that wherever you want. It was, a, it was a busy weekend around the Big Ten. Absolutely it was. I mean, let's start with Rutgers. Why not? They, they, it feels like they've graduated a little bit from being a team that'll, that'll really uh, – you know, mess up your weekend. They were just good enough to really screw up your plans. You know, they, they typically pitch well and the offense was what's behind. Now it feels like they're becoming a more complete team. And so uh, big, big deal for them, whether or not they, I mean, whether or not they get to the postseason this year, uh, this is, this season has been a huge step forward for that program. So that think that's definitely worth celebrating. And it wouldn't be the weirdest thing in the world. I'm sure you, you dove into this, but like, you know, with the schedule they have in front of them, they've got a tough little pod this weekend with Indiana and Nebraska, which, you know, big things happening in Piscataway this weekend. But once they get past that, they, you know, if they come out of that, it, you know, at least maybe splitting those games, they've got Minnesota, Penn State, Michigan State, and Illinois. And those are all, you know, as hard as it is to, to use these terms for Rutgers, those are all super winnable series for Rutgers. So the path is certainly there for them to be in a position to make the postseason. And I think that's a really cool development for a program that has just really struggled to find its footing as a member of the, um, of the big 10 in a way that, that Maryland necessarily, even though they've been down, Maryland didn't necessarily have that same struggle to get, to get acclimated there. So Indiana, I think nothing really super surprised me about the way Indiana won that series against Iowa. They come back falls a little bit short. Uh, in the first game of the series. So Iowa wins that, which is, is big for Iowa. We get that one win out of three on the road there. But then the next two days, you know, Indiana's offense came in and looked a little more like the Indiana offense we're used to seeing. They really just blitzed Iowa starting pitching. 
uh, early in those next two games. And, and even though Indiana's own pitching staff, you know, struggled a little bit, looked a little rickety trying to hold those leads. Uh, they were able the to build wind it. was blowing at least on Sunday. Indeed. I'm sure it was on Saturday. It always blows a Bart Kaufman. Indeed it does. That is a, that is an offensive environment. You would not necessarily think would be a great offensive environment. If you look at the park um, and look at how gray and dreary some of those days can be, but man, that ball, I was big 10 tournament 2017 is still seared into my brain in terms of offensive environments. But regardless, I mean, uh, Iowa, you know, made some runs in both games, but Indiana built enough of a cushion early on to, to get it done there. So not a huge surprise there. Just maybe was Indiana looking a little more true to form from what we expected. Yeah, uh, the quickly on Rutgers, I, I went into it pretty in-depth in off the bat. I talked with Steve Owens and Mike Nystor yesterday, and the, the one significant thing about the schedule, not only is it, uh, you know, they've, they've mostly gone past the hardest part of their schedule. The last three weeks they played Iowa, Michigan, and, and uh, Nebraska. So that's, that's really tough. And then this week, this weekend, you know, and they do have Nebraska and Indiana. So they are just about done with the, the hardest bit of their schedule. But they are right now basically done with their, their travel. They have one road weekend at Penn State for a pod. That's, I don't know if it's the shortest bus trip for the, for the Scarlet Knights, but it's at worst the second longest or second shortest bus trip. I don't know whether it's shorter to go to Maryland or, or state college for them but regardless it's a quick bus trip versus you know flying into lincoln or they were in uh in a pod in minnesota to start the year they've been to chicago twice like they're not doing that anymore they're they're, they've got easy travel now they've played really well on the road they have 12 wins away from home 13 wins away from home maybe i they have 12 true road wins i think and they have currently a losing record at home. So they're going to have to, going to have to get some home cooking going, but I think they're excited about the opportunity to play baseball games at home in May that are meaningful. That's something that just, it hasn't happened too much over the years. And, um, you know, I think that they are, they're, they're feeling it right now that, you know, they're, they're getting some love from, from the fans, from the alumni. And uh, it's an exciting time for the Rutgers program. So I'm, I'm very excited to see how they, how they fare down the stretch here. Um, IU, like I mentioned on the preview pod, this is just the start of it for them, but it was very important that they get this series win at home. And then I think it's also significant the way it happened. They have not lost on Friday very often this year. They lost game one of the season. They lost opening day to Rutgers. Then they lost on Friday at Ohio state on opening day, they bounced back. I think they played a doubleheader that day and they won the second game and they went three and one on the weekend. But at Ohio State, that first loss turned into a four game sweep in Columbus. And, you know, that is something that just absolutely cannot happen. So they, they, they just, they didn't let one loss snowball on them this weekend. And uh, that was that's important, not just because it allowed them to win the series and move into first place, but they're going to lose some games over the next month of the season. Still, like they're they're playing nothing but the Big Ten's top half, basically the rest of the way. So there are going to be more losses. They have to understand that. They just have to not let it get to them and 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 keep it rolling. And um, you know, hopefully for their sake, they they learn something this weekend, or, or that they prove to themselves that they, you know, they. They don't have to 
to let one loss ruin their weekend uh, because it can't the rest of the way if they're going to win uh, their second consecutive Big Ten title because they, they are the reigning Big Ten champs still since there was no 20 season. They won it in 19. So it's uh, it was a really good weekend for the Hoosiers. They needed that one. And I, I think the way that they went about winning it is uh, almost as significant as just the fact that they did win it. Uh, Joe, where do you stand on the number of teams that the Big Ten is looking at? Because, you know, we've been pretty consistent three, maybe four. Like I said, they're now seven. You're looking at a top three right now that have separated a little bit, though, again, with Nebraska getting swept and Michigan splitting, the, the field has condensed somewhat. But there's still a separation between or after Indiana, Michigan, and Nebraska. And then you've got um, – Maryland, Ohio State, Rutgers, and Iowa all within a few games of each other. Iowa already has racked up the big wins. They, like Rutgers, don't have much difficult, much in the way of difficult games left. Maryland and Ohio State are somewhere in between those. Uh, but they're all above 500. They all have some big wins on their, their plate. I, I don't know. I, it's, uh, it, it might be a situation where the, this conference pushes more towards the upper boundary of of its its norm it's typically somewhere between three and five bids and i've been thinking that they were going to be on the lower end of that by not playing non-conference games but the way things are shaking out they might push the upper limit of that yeah very well could be um you know i i too have i too have shifted a little bit throughout the year i i was on the low end of the range i'm with you i just kind of thought that you know, frankly, I kind of thought that the negativity around the way the Big Ten went about this might bleed over, but you don't hear it now. I don't, I don't live in Big Ten country. I don't, you know, I'm not at those games anymore, really. So maybe that's still being discussed, but I think that's kind of gone away and the focus is on the field now. So I thought that might linger and bleed into the conversation a little more. Not that the committee would care about that, but I thought that would color some of this. So I was kind of on the low end of that. And, and I, I have changed my tune a little bit. I still have a hard time seeing the full five and certainly anything above five would be truly shocking in this year. And, uh, you know, if you're the big 10, yeah, that's, that would be unprecedented. It can't, yeah. I cannot imagine an unprecedented number of teams in a year where you don't play non-conference games. Indeed. And if they, if they, if they do get an unprecedented number, the breaking news, big 10 shifts its scheduling format to only play each other year after year. Um, no, I, so I, I can't, obviously can't see that, but I struggle to even see the five just because that would, that would signal that, this is seen as a historically good big 10, at least as good as it's ever really been, I guess, by most measures. And I don't know that they're really going to be able to make a clear judgment on that. Now that means they're in an unenviable position of good luck declustering these teams. If you've got, if you're looking to get four, if you're looking at four and you've got three teams tied for fourth, for example, so that will make the job pretty hard. But if, if you made me guess, I think I'm going four. And I'd probably set the over-under now at four and a half as opposed to three and a half, which is what I probably would have done a month ago. So if you're going four, are you going the three that are up alone or uh, that that have separated a touch now, which again, Indiana, Michigan, Nebraska, and then one of the group below? Or do you think one of those top three teams falls out of it over the, the final few weeks? Yeah, that's, that's tough. I mean, uh, yeah, I guess I'd probably go those three plus one from the group. And I still like Iowa just because of the, the scheduling advantages that it has. But 
but I also do have a little bit of worry about Indiana. They, they had a good weekend, um, but, you know, are they able to really weather the storm over these next few weeks? Because it's, it's just not, it's just not going to be easy. So um, the short answer is I don't know though, because the thing about it is these get so tangled up in each other because if, if Indiana takes some lumps, well, that probably means Nebraska is in a, in a you know, maybe they're winning the big 10. So you, you push them up and then what do you do with Michigan? Cause they also play Indiana. And they, so it, they just get so, because these teams at the top, are kind of playing each other so much over the next few weeks, it's hard to detangle them from each other. And it's hard for me to really do the mental gymnastics needed to figure out exactly which of these teams I see being there at the end. What I'm about to say is undoubtedly um, just a little reactionary, a little uh, recency bias, but you know, the team I'm concerned about is Nebraska. I talked a lot about how hard I use closing stretches and it's true. It is hard. But here's Nebraska, two against IU this weekend, two against Rutgers, three against Northwestern, and then two at IU, two against Ohio State, and three against Michigan. That's barely any easier, and this is a team that just got swept at home and didn't look very good doing it at all. Um, They also haven't played a ton of really challenging teams. You know, they've played more than Indiana, uh, but mostly they've played at Iowa and Ohio State. (laughs) Like... They have yet to see, you know, Rutgers before this weekend, um, Indiana, Michigan. They, they've been living off of playing well against Iowa. What if Iowa isn't as good as we thought they were? You know, and I, I'm not even like saying Iowa's bad or anything, but like what if they just aren't quite as good? Um, you know, then what, what does that do to, to what Nebraska is? You know, I don't know. Um, maybe I'm getting too caught up in the fact that they just got swept at home, but I – Nebraska now is, is, is all of a sudden a team that a week ago I felt pretty good about, you know, and thought like, you know, while they, I wasn't on the hosting train for the Huskers, like I understood it, but I'm now starting to wonder like, you know, this final month for a bunch of players and a, a head coach that has never done it as a head coach, like trying to close trying to get down the over the line here. There's just not a whole lot of experience doing that. And there's much more of that on the Indiana side. So I, I maybe that's something I shouldn't be wondering about. Maybe that's not fair, but it, it is something that I, 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 you know, just seeing what happened this weekend, they didn't handle the success of finally getting ranked particularly well, uh, despite the fact that they were at home. Um, I don't know. I don't know what's going to shake out for them over the, the next month. I do know this is suddenly a huge weekend in Piscataway for the Huskers. Yeah, certainly the, um, the, the, as you alluded to, the way they get swept in that series, two late game collapses and then not being competitive in the finale is, um, yeah, certainly I don't know that you could draw up like a worse way to have to get swept. I mean, I think even three blowouts might not be worse than that, just because to be so close to winning that series and to have it slip away is particularly painful. And then, you know, they get shut out on Sunday. That's the second time all season they've been shut out like that. That was bad. Like I'm breaking news here, but that like to not have any response on Sunday and like, look, I mean, the way they lost those first two games, uh, a bullpen that had been very rock solid prior to Rutgers showing up blowing a, a couple of leads late. Like, I mean, I get it. That's hard to bounce back from, but the fact that there was no response um, that, that just doesn't seem to portend great things, but you know, they have a week to, to get right before they, uh, before they head to, to New Jersey.
All right, Joe, we covered a lot there. Um, there's a lot more that happened around the country this weekend. There was a perfect game thrown by Central Michigan's Jordan Patty. There were a couple of no hitters, including an 11 inning no hitter combined for uh, UT Arlington. Uh, we've, we've got all of that covered over at baseballamerica.com. You can read all about all of that there. Uh, and remember to subscribe to the Baseball America College Podcast. We'll be back here later in the week uh, to talk about the upcoming weekend of college baseball. All of a sudden, now that it's May, there are conference titles on the line. We talked about the Big 12, but it's also true in the Big West. Uh, the Pac-12 has a, a big showdown. They're, they're just a lot of big-time important series in terms of conference title races this weekend. So looking forward to diving into that later this week. So if you subscribe to the podcast, uh, you can look for that on Thursday right there in your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, you can find the Baseball America podcast. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. There'll be plenty of content to come over at baseballamerica.com. Uh, so check that all out. In the meantime, we'll be back here on Thursday. I want to thank you all for listening. Thank you to Rapsodo for presenting this and every other Baseball America College podcast. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.